Welcome to the Dublin City Public Libraries and Archive podcast. In this, the third in a series of three lectures, Dr Brian Hanley looks at how the 1916 Rising has been remembered, why it has become controversial, and the various interpretations of its significance 100 years on. Recorded in front of a live audience at Rathmines Library on the 9th of March 2016 as part of the Dublin City Council 1916 Centenary Programme. I want to start with a street run that was quite popular in Ireland in 1918 and 1919. When we were little children, Johnny Redmond was a fool. He bade us be satisfied with something called Home Rule. But we've learned a thing or two since we went to school and we'll crown de Valera King of Ireland. Now, what this rhyme says about Irish politics in 1918 and 1919, I think we can possibly discuss and return to later on. But what I want to talk about tonight is the immediate aftermath of the rising, particularly the changes that occur over the next two or three years, and also the way the rising is remembered, because the Easter Rising 1916 is widely understood as the birthplace of the modern Irish state, and also seen in many ways as the foundation stone of modern Irish Republicans. The first three leaders of independent Ireland, W.T. Cosgrave, Eamon de Valera, and Sean Lamass, all fought in the week. But this state owes its existence to a treaty that was signed in December 1921 and the outline of the other state on this island, Northern Ireland, was formulated in the Government of Ireland Act of 1920. So while we might celebrate 1916 as the birth of our nation or the birth of our state, the fact is Easter week was a defeat. And what did emerge from it in the longer run might be two states, but for many people both those states are problematic because both the states on this island faced very bloody beginnings. Um, both of them, in fact, face civil wars. We're all familiar, of course, that the new free state faced a civil war between 1922 and 1923, but Northern Ireland also essentially experienced a civil war between 1920 and 1922, even though it's not called that, but that's what it was. And this inevitably colours how we view the legacy of 1916, both positively and negatively. And I'll come back to why sometimes 1916 is seen by many people as much more romantic in many ways and much cleaner than the wars which emerged after. And the memory of 1916 is also coloured for many people by disappointment. In 1937, Hannah Shee Skeffington, Kathleen Lynn, and a number of other women veterans of the independence struggle protested as what they saw as the betrayal of the promise of women's equality by De Valera's constitution of 1937, and indeed by a range of measures that had eroded women's rights under both the Coming Again administration and the Fianna Fáil governments from 1932 on. And that the egalitarian promises of the rising were abandoned by the new free state or by de Valera or both is a very common assertion, as is the view that the 1916 leaders would be disappointed, to put it mildly, at modern Ireland and its politics. And in fact, if any of us or all of us had a euro for the amount of time that we've heard that the men and women of 1916 would turn in their graves and how Ireland turned out, we'd all be very wealthy. Now, the only problem with that is, and I would suggest it at the beginning, and we may want to come back to it in the discussion, is that the majority of men and women of 1916 did not die in 1916. They lived in the Ireland, in both Ireland, in fact, for decades afterwards. So we can actually trace how many of them were disappointed and how many weren't disappointed. Because as I mentioned at the beginning, the three men who governed this country, Cosgrave, de Valera, and Lamance, were all out in 1916. So the question is, were they disappointed by Ireland and how it emerged? Um, again, I think it's something that we, we need to ponder when we think about this idea, this very common idea, particularly today, that there was a betrayal 
and that these people were, were, were let down in some way by the new, the new uh, state that emerged. But the fact is, commemoration usually tells us more about those doing the commemorating than it does about what's being commemorated. Jolene, a historian, for example, has described how in debates about 1916 and the Irish Revolution, the dead are prostituted to the polemics of the present, and the grave diggers drag out the corpses with the sole purpose of hawking them around the present-day battlefields. In other words, we use 1916 and what happened and the sacrifices of the people then to prove our own political points today. And that's, I think, fairly uh, obvious. Most of the arguments about 1916 and how we remember it, or whether we should celebrate it, are actually about modern politics and modern art. Hence, public commemoration of the Easter Rising changed dramatically after 1970 with the emergence of armed conflict in Northern Ireland. The current commemorations would probably not be possible if there was still extensive political violence taking place on this island. In many ways, 2006, 10 years ago, and 2016 are very much products of the peace process. And they're governed, in fact, uh, a lot of the discussion about how shared history and the need to bring out all the complexities of Irish people in 1916 is the politics of the peace process brought into commemoration as well. In 1966, there's very different commemorations, and in 1946 and 1936 as well. But to go back to 1916 itself and its impact, I think the first thing that we need to remember is that 1916 had a global impact immediately. It was international news right across the world that there'd been a rebellion in the heart of the British Empire, in the heart of what people saw as the United Kingdom. The fact that the rebellion had lasted for a week, that Dublin city centre was ablaze, was headline news in New York, was known throughout the world. Lenin, the leader of the Bolsheviks in Russia, argued, a blow delivered against British imperialist rule by a rebellion in Ireland is of a hundred times greater political significance than a blow of equal weight in Asia or Africa. In other words, a rebellion in Ireland, even if it only lasted a week, would have a much more profound effect on Britain than would rebellions of a similar size and a similar duration in distant parts of the empire. The young Indian nationalist Vijaya Nehru, a young girl in 1916, recalled reading about Michael Malone and the Battle of Mount Street, and she said she was of the age group that was thrilled by the Irish Rising in 1916 and have stayed thrilled by Ireland's story ever since. And in India in particular, among Indian nationalists of various political descriptions, Easter 1916 had a, had a very, very big impact. From Calcutta to Cairo in Egypt to the streets of New York's Harlem by 1919, the FBI are recording the American intelligence are recording that black nationalists in Harlem constantly talk about the Easter rebellion in Dublin and the sacrifice of Irish nationalists in Dublin. The Easter Rising was celebrated at the time as a blow against the British Empire right across the globe, and sometimes they can be forgotten today. The British understood it straight away. They knew what the impact of the Rising would be. And Edward Carson, the Unionist leader, warned in 1916 that if you tell your empire in India, in Egypt, and all over the world that you have not got the men, the money, the pluck, the inclination, or the backing to restore order in, a, order in a country within 20 miles of your own shore, you may as well begin to abandon the attempt to make British rule prevail throughout the empire at all. In other words, if you can't control Ireland, how will you control India once it rebels? Four years later, Sir Henry Wilson, another unionist, born originally in Longford, another senior Irishman in the British military establishment, born, if we lose Ireland, we lose the empire. Again, sometimes we get into very heated debates about Dublin in 1916, we forget that this is a global event, that the eyes of the world are actually uh, on Ireland itself. But in, in this country, the rising most obviously reignited a new form of republican movement. By December 1918, the dominant political force was a party, Sinn Féin, that celebrated the rising and claimed to stand in its legacy. But of course, this didn't happen immediately. 
the initial reaction to the rising, as we know, among many Irish people of various political persuasions, is to denounce it and condemn it. And certainly John Redmond, a home rule leader, regarded in many circles as the leader of the Irish race, and that's the way he's described in Irish newspapers at the time, expressed detestation and horror in the House of Commons at the rising and blames it on German intrigue. He sees it as a stab in the back. For him and his party, he believes the rebels set out primarily to damage him and to destroy any hope of peaceful self-government. All the work that he believes he's carrying on from Parnell onwards is undone, he thinks, by the rising. But Redmond, from a very early stage, also warned the British government not to pursue a policy of repression in Ireland and certainly not to pursue a policy of executions. But just as significant, by the 11th of May, his deputy John Dillon warns the House of Commons that you are letting loose a river of blood. Make no mistake about it. Then he says, I am proud of these men. They were foolish, they were misled, but I say I am proud of their courage. And if you were not so dense and stupid as some of you English people are, you could have had these men fighting for you. They fought a clean fight. They fought with superb bravery and skill. And what is happening now is that thousands of people are becoming infuriated against the government on account of these executions. Now, one of, some of what Dylan says is very conventional, that it's the executions that are driving people towards support for the rising. But also I think it's significant that he continually references the idea that the rebels have fought a clean fight with superb bravery and skill. And again, it's that indication of actually how quickly attitudes had changed um, in the Ireland at the time. Now, in contrast, the national and most of the local press immediately condemned the rising. Most of the local newspaper papers believed the rising was a socialist revolt led by Connolly and by Jim Larkin, who was supposed to have arrived back from America. And it took them a couple of weeks before they realised, actually, that the citizens' army weren't the major part of the revolt at all. But the national press, of course, condemned the rising outright. The Irish Times, a unionist newspaper, obviously condemned the rising. In general, support of the British government's moves to clamp down on the rebels. The Freeman's Journal, which was the Home Rule Party's paper, also condemned the rising. was very uneasy, however, about the repression that the British government unleashed. And the Irish Independent, which was the best-selling daily newspaper in Ireland at the time, in many ways took the hardest line ab about the rising. It warned that no terms of denunciation would be too strong to apply to those responsible for the insane and criminal rising of the last week. On the 9th of May, when there was already quite a strong public clamour for executions at least to end. An editorial in the Irish Independent warned, if these men are treated with too much leniency, they will take it as, as an indication of weakness on the part of the government. Let the worst of the ringleaders be singled out and dealt with as they deserve. On the 12th of May, editorial returned to the same theme. It said, certain of the leaders remain undealt with and their part they played was worse than those who have paid the extreme penalty. Are they, because of an indiscriminate demand for clemency, to get off lightly? And on the 12th, both James Connolly and Sean McDermott were executed. Now, in retrospect, many people immediately assume that the Irish Independent, owned by William Martin Murphy, was seeking revenge for the lockout and had particularly desired the execution of Connolly. And again, to complicate matters further, the rest of the editorial was about why the British government shouldn't carry out wholesale arrests and should actually go very easily in terms of the way it dealt with the general population. But it certainly says that there were certain leaders who hadn't been dealt with. Um, William Martin Murphy claimed he didn't know about the editorial, that he didn't write it. It was read, written by T.R. Harrington, his editor in Dublin. But of course, what's significant is one, that the Irish Independent called for the executions until at least the 12th of May, and also that the Irish Independent remained the best-selling newspaper in Ireland for years afterwards. Um, despite the fact that within a few months, the executed leaders had become heroes, 
and we have the growth of a movement that celebrates the rising, the Irish Independent doesn't lose any sales. By 1920, the police in Galway would complain that the mainstay of the Sinn Féin movement in this county is the Irish Independent. It is this paper which creates, fosters and foments hatred of the English government from day to day, from week to week, from year to year. It never lets it alone. So again, we have a question here of how people do respond to the rising, and particularly what, certainly in 2016, if we look at modern Sinn Féin, for example, when they have disputes with the Irish Independent, which they do regularly, they always refer back to the paper that called for the execution of Connolly and McDermott. Yet, in 1917 and 1918, many people who by now regarded Connolly and McDermott as heroes seem content by the Irish Independent. And by 1920, the British authorities are blaming the Irish Independent for spreading sedition and rebellion. So again, we might come back to that. Evidence of even more complexity, and also how attitudes maybe didn't have that far to travel from Home Ruler to Republican, comes in the testimony of Eamon Bryan. I've quoted him a couple of times because he's eminently quotable. Uh, detective at Great Brunswick Street, now Pierce Street, in 1916, talks about during Easter week, police confined to barracks, most of them anyway. He says, several loyal citizens of the old Unionist type called to Brunswick Street to inquire why the British Army and the police had not already ejected the Sinn Féiners from the occupied building. Whilst a number of that type were present, a big uniformed Dublin Metropolitan Policeman, a Claremont, came in. He told us of having gone to his home in Donnybrook to assure himself of the safety of his family. He saw the British Army Parliament landed at Kingstown, marching through Donnybrook. They were singing, he said, but the soldiers that came in by Balls Bridge didn't do much singing. They ran into a few Irishmen who soon took the singing out of them. We laughed at the loud way he said it and the effect on the loyalist presence. Now, the policeman was talking about Mount Street, the devastating losses that the Sheriff of Foresters had faced there. And the police both laugh at this, and they also particularly liked the fact that the Unionists in the station experienced discomfort. Now, these were the police agents of the Crown, but again, it reflects the fact that most Dublin policemen were nationalists and Home Rule supporters. Many of them would have resented that promotion was dependent on politics and that most of their senior officers were Protestants and Unionists. And many of their attitudes didn't have that much far to travel to become by 1918 and 1919 uh, more radical nationalists. And certainly in Broy's case, of course, he becomes an agent for uh, the Republican movement. But there are other differences in attitudes of the police and how the police experience changes over the next few years, which again indicate differences between 1916 and what comes afterwards. As early as June that year, Republican street protests were again a feature of Dublin life. On the 18th of June, a large group of young men and women carrying Republican flags and collection boxes for the National Aid Association set up to help the families of those in jail in England marched through Dame Street and onto College Green. On their way, they gave three cheers for the Irish Republic. They booed when they passed Dublin Castle. When they met soldiers and policemen on the street, they also booed them. And at Westmoreland Street, the police attempted to disperse the march and clashes erupted. Several people were injured. Among those who were injured was a policeman, Constable John Barton, who suffered a bruised ankle and ribs. Now, Barton was a native of Ballymagelligate in County Kerry, like most Dublin policemen who came from outside Dublin. He was already very well known in the city. He was credited with capturing dozens of criminals in the years up to 1916. After Easter week, he was decorated with Buckingham Palace with the King's Medal for conspicuous gallantry because he'd actually gone out of his station during the rising and arrested people for looting. He'd also captured two men carrying ammunition despite orders that the police remain off the street. And he gained promotion. In November 1919, uh, three years later, at the age of 36, Barton was promoted to de Detective Sergeant in the G Division, in the Special Branch. 
Shortly after that, he was shot dead by the IRA just 50 yards from the Great Brunswick Street Station. Now, in 1916, as I think I mentioned last week, detectives from G Division actually were at the GPO taking notes when the rebellion began. And the rebels made no effort to detain them in most cases. Detectives went back to their stations and compared notes. Within three years, detectives are shot on their way to work. They're shot in front of their families. They're sometimes shot coming out of places of worship. And that is, in many ways, quite a new type of war and very much a change in most cases from what had happened in 1916. And if you look at the pension statements left by the people, particularly involved in the Rising in Dublin, who remained active in the IRA thereafter throughout the War of Independence, you'll see that the nature of the IRA's war changes very dramatically for most. The core of Michael Collins' organisation in Dublin were all 1916 veterans, and they were certainly extremely active between 1919 and 1921. But the majority of Dublin IRA members were in no way as active. In many cases, some of them didn't handle a gun again after 1916. 1916 was unique in the type of warfare, in fighting in the middle of the city, fighting in uniform. And I think this also colours in many, way, many ways, even at the time, how it was viewed. It was viewed as a very different type of warfare than the war that came afterwards. And again, I think of John Dillon talking about a clean fight even in 1920, 1921, some people who were uneasy with the IRA's campaign compared it negatively with the way Easter Week had been fought. And even within the Republican movement, there were people who were more comfortable with the idea of being in the GPO fighting against overwhelming odds than they were with shooting policemen getting off their bicycles 50 yards from their place of work. Um, now, when I say it was unique, it was unique all to the start of the Civil War because the fighting in Dublin at the beginning of the Civil War is very similar to Easter Week in terms of the taking over of buildings, buildings being shelled, and all the rest of it. Politically, the Rising was immediately dubbed the Sinn Féin Rebellion, and the participants were almost universally described as Sinn Féiners. In recent years, a lot of people have suggested that this title is misleading because neither Sinn Féin as an organisation nor its best-known leader, Arthur Griffith, actually played a role in the Rising. But of course, Sinn Féin members were out in 1916. Eamon Kant, one of the signatories of the proclamation, was a member of the party, as was Michal O'Hanrahan, who was executed for his role in the Rising. Sinn Féin's leader on Dublin Corporation, W.T. Cosgrave, took part in the Rising, as did his colleague, Sean T. O'Kelly. And among the rank and file of the rebels, there's dozens of Sinn Féin members, or ex-members in general. So the label, in some ways, is not that misleading. And more importantly, the term Sinn Féiner was widely described by both the authorities, the press, and ordinary people to describe any type of radical nationalist. The old MacNeil-led Irish volunteers are always described, for example, as the Sinn Féin volunteers. And despite the fact that Griffith didn't take part in the rising, he was jailed afterwards, and his journalism was regarded by many of the rebels themselves as having played a major role in influencing their generation. Now, as a result, a party with the name Sinn Féin was very well, pla well placed during 1917 to emerge as the main political force to come out of the Rising. And in 1917, there's a series of by-elections. In Roscommon, Longford, Clare and Kilkenny in particular, which sees Sinn Féin eventually emerge as the main political vehicle of the new revolutionary movement. Now, the first two by-elections in Roscommon and Longford are not actually fought by Sinn Féin. Count Plunkett, the father of several of, of the young men involved in the Rising and Father Joseph Mary Plunkett stands in Roscommon. He's not an abstentionist, for example. Uh, he never swears that he wouldn't go to Westminster, nevertheless, 
He has the, the aura of the rising about him and he wins that seat, beats the Home Rule Party. In Longford, Joseph McGuinness, the prisoner, is, is stood as a candidate. Um, he is an abstentionist, but he doesn't stand as a Sinn Féin candidate. Nevertheless, by the by-election in Clare East, when De Valera wins his seat, it is more clearly as a Sinn Féin uh, representative. And in Kilkenny, where W.T. Cosgrave wins his seat, it is also for Sinn Féin. Therefore, Sinn Féin becomes the name that's associated with this new movement. And in October 1917, the new reorganised Sinn Féin holds its first Ardesh or first convention in Dublin. Eamon de Valera becomes its president. Griffith takes a step back, having led the party for years and becomes vice president, along with father Michael Flanagan. Now, de Valera at this time is also always referred to in the press as the surviving commandant of Easter Week. He certainly was the surviving commander, although a couple of people during the rising had actually been promoted to commandant during the fight in Brent Whitmore, for example, and, and young Sean McLaughlin. But nevertheless, this is the term, and certainly it's key to his image in 1917 as, as a senior leader of the rising. What's significant about the new Sinn Féin in 1917 is that its constitution now commits it to the Republic of 1916. Sinn Féin until 1917 wasn't an explicitly Republican party. It had a wide variety of views within its ranks of what type of Ireland should emerge once Ireland broke away from Britain. But Sinn Féin also holds to much of Arthur Griffith's um, own unique programme. That is, abstention from the British Parliament. Sinn Féin members obviously will not vote for Westminster. Economic protectionism, the belief that Ireland could thrive economically once it broke away from Britain and imposed strong tariffs on British goods and developed its own industries, and the formation of an Irish National Assembly from people elected in Ireland itself. These were Griffith's ideas and he promoted them for years, and suddenly in 1917 there's a party that looks like it's going to be a force actually pushing these ideas. What's particularly stressed in 1917, and sometimes again forgotten because we know what happens in the five or six years afterwards, is that in 1917, Sinn Féin is stressing all the time that what they want is a place for Ireland at the post-war peace conference. War is still on in 1917. Nobody knows who's going to win it. So some people obviously still feel the Germans might win. And Sinn Féin argue there is going to be a redrawing of the map of Europe and indeed the map of the world. And Ireland must have its place at the post-war peace conference. And this will be our central message. We will take the argument for an independent Irish Republic to, to the great powers at the end of the war. Then Woodrow Wilson, the American president, begins talking about the right of nations and self-determination. And this is referenced a lot in Ireland uh, in those years. The party also then commits itself to make use of any and every means available to render impotent the power of England to hold Ireland in subjection by military force or otherwise. Now, this in many ways was a pretty vague formula because it could be read um, in different ways by different people. It wasn't made clear, for example, who would use this military force. And a critic noted it might cover everything from pitch and toss to manslaughter. In other words, if you were a young militant who wanted another fight against the British, you could see Sinn Féin as standing for that fight. But if you were you know, a bit uneasy about force, you might think this is about civil disobedience or it's about withdrawing from Westminster, not necessarily about another war. Um, and I want to stress how pragmatic Sinn Féin was in 1917, because both de Valera and Griffith are very eager to win support from people who previously supported Redmond's party, the Home Rule Party. At the 1917 Ardesh, Owen McNeill tops the poll for the Sinn Féin executive. Now McNeill countermanded the order to rise in 1916. You might think in many ways that he'd be persona non grata. He gets the highest vote of any candidate for the new Sinn Féin executive, which is about 40 members. De Valera states publicly that we want an Irish Republic, 
Because if Ireland had her freedom, it is, I believe, the most likely form of government. But if the Irish people wanted to have another form of government, as long as it, as it was an Irish government, I wouldn't put a word against it. Arthur Griffith endorses de Valera as president of the party by asserting that de Valera has the mining capacity that Ireland will need at the peace conference, the mining capacity of the statesman. So in de Valera saying, yes, we're Republicans, but you know, if the Irish people don't want a republic as long as it's an independent Ireland, we're not going to be doctrinaire about it. And Griffith is, of course, talking about de Valera as potentially a great negotiator at a post-war peace conference. And again, this is what's being stressed by Sinn Féin. So again, I want to emphasize there's an attempt to win broad support. It's not just for people who want war with the British at this point. De Valera also argues significantly that Sinn Féin must go, must go beyond the stage when we regard politics as roguery and the politician as a rogue. Now, until 1916, members of the Irish Republican Brotherhood and other radicals did regard all politicians as rogues, and probably with good, uh, you know, good sense. And they tended to see home rule, for example, as an excuse for careerists to get places in a new Irish parliament. De Valera is stressing no politics is an important business. And he also says there are people in the Home Rule Party who believe they're serving Ireland, and we've got to reach out for those people. And indeed, former Home Rulers begin to come over to Sinn Féin during 1917 and 1980. Now, there are militants in the party, like Cahill Brewer, Countess Markovich, who are very angry that Owen McNeill is allowed to attend the Ardèche and allowed to stand for the executive. But it, his presence is also very reassuring for particularly members of the Catholic clergy who are becoming associated with Sinn Féin and former Home Rule activists. That in fact, you could oppose the Rising and be a member of Sinn Féin in 1917, even though the party officially endorses the Rising retrospectively, stands for the Republic of 1916, you could be uneasy about the Rising and still be a member of, of the party. And during the Clare by-election in particular, what was significant was that de Valera had a lot of support from younger priests in Clare, and the Catholic Church was beginning to divide. The older priests and some of the bishops sticking with the Home Rule Party, younger clerics, younger priests and nuns becoming more associated with Sinn Féin. Now, of course, most of that is visible to the public, but like with every political organisation, and particularly any organisation that has a revolutionary aspect to it, behind the scenes there's all kinds of internal divisions which are usually kept quiet. Within the new Sinn Féin and also uh, within what becomes the new Irish Volunteers, you have a major divide between a reorganised Irish Republican Brotherhood, which is being pulled back together by people like Michael Collins, Harry Boland, Dermot Lynch and others in the internment camps in England and Wales, and those who feel that the IRB has outlived its usefulness. Cahill Brewer leaves the IRB after 1916. De Valera, who'd only been briefly in the IRB, also leaves it. Ironically, Jerry Boland, Harry's brother, leaves the IRB. Some people argue that 1916, the countermanding order and all that confusion was caused by this idea of secret societies. De Valera says, now we have an open political movement, we don't need secret societies anymore. And that remains a source of tension within the Republican movement over the next few years. And some of those political differences are also personal differences, and they fester right from 1916 and 1917 onwards. Again, I should mention, of course, that some people like Michael Collins and Richard Mulcahy privately are quite critical of the tactics used during the Easter Rising, and others like Cahal Rua regard it really as the, the optimal moment of Irish history and are very proud of the Rising and the way it was carried out, and that is also an issue over the next few years. But I think the defining moment in the transformation of Irish politics, and I hope we commemorate it uh, in, 19, in, in 2018, is the attempt by the British government to introduce conscription in April 1918. Sinn Féin win four by-elections. 
Sinn Féin are on the rise during 1917, often forgetting them that they lose four. There's four more by-elections in the Home Rule Party actually win them. One of them's in South Armagh, one of them's in Waterford, John Redmond dies, Home Rule Party holds his seat. So actually again, in 1918 you have newspapers speculating on that as the forward march of Sinn Féin being halted. Are they going to be able to withstand this crisis? What changes things, of course, is that the Allies are in serious trouble on the Western Front. Russia has left the war, the Germans are able to move all their resources towards the Western Front. They begin a major offensive in the spring of 1918, which nearly turns the tide. It's only the arrival of hundreds of thousands of American troops that actually saves uh, the Allies in the end. British government are desperate for men, and they introduce a military service bill for Ireland. Now, whatever chance they might have had in 1914, and they wouldn't have had much of a chance of introducing conscription here in 1914, because even then, the entire nationalist constituency was against it. By 1918, there is no appetite for conscription in this country. The entire nationalist population are united against it. On the 18th of April 1918, De Valera and Griffith of Sinn Féin, Tim Healy, John Dillon and Joe Devlin of the Home Rule Party, Tom Johnson and William O'Brien of the Irish Trade Union Congress, meet at the Mansion House in Dublin at a convention to organise resistance to conscription. The Home Rule Party withdraw from Westminster in protest. Now, this shows, one, how seriously Irish people are taking the issue of conscription. It also is a huge boost to Sinn Féin, because Sinn Féin are able to say, we said you should never go there in the first place. And this crisis has proved us right. Convention makes several decisions in terms of organising resistance to conscription if it's introduced. And a delegation goes from the Mansion House to Maynooth, where the Catholic hierarchy are meeting on the same day, to ask them to throw their weight behind the anti-conscription campaign. De Valera proposes an anti-conscription pledge, which he presents to the bishops. And the language of the pledge is actually loosely modelled on the Ulster Covenant of 1912. It says, Denying the right of the British government to enforce compulsory service in this country, we pledge ourselves solemnly to one another to resist conscription by the most effective means at our disposal. Again, that's vague enough to suit everybody. The bishops agree as long as they are able to add a section of their own. And this is also um, quite important, because their section states that the people had the right to resist all methods that were consonant with the law of God, and it also specifically points out that conscription forced upon Ireland is an oppressive and inhuman law. And the reason why that's significant is because the Catholic Church is an international body. It doesn't just exist in Ireland. And the Catholic Church wasn't opposed to conscription in Britain. It wasn't opposed to it in the United States. So it had to specifically say, in Ireland, it is an oppressive and inhuman law. And obviously their law of God, again, is open to interpretation by, by different people and certainly interpreted differently by, by different sections of the movement. This pledge is then signed at church gates after Mass, along with donations taken up for a National Defence Fund. Hundreds of thousands of people signed the anti-conscription pledge. Hundreds of thousands of pounds are collected for the campaign against conscription. And the crisis really invigorates the idea of violent resistance, because many people presume if the British introduce conscription, they're going to have to force men into the British Army, and the only way to stop that will be to fight them. During 1918, an article appears on the front page of Ontogo, which is the Journal of the Irish Volunteers. This article, probably written by Ernest Bly, um, is entitled Ruthless Warfare. And it suggests that all those assisting conscription must be shot or otherwise destroyed with the least possible delay. In short, we must show it is not healthy to be against us. And in the article, it points out that we don't just mean policemen and soldiers. Any civil servant who takes part in enforcing conscription in Ireland is, will be a target for the Irish volunteers. But 
In April 1918 and in May 1918, much of the popular mood of defiance is actually captured and led by the trade unions. Thomas Johnson and William O'Brien are the two uh, most important leaders of the post-1916 unions, and they draw up an elaborate plan for civil resistance, including general strikes, a takeover of the railways, and a reorganisation of food supplies if conscription is introduced. Mass passive civil disobedience was to greet the introduction of conscription. On the 23rd of April 1918, there was a one-day general strike, which was a huge success outside of unionist Ulster. Of course, the one group of people who are outside this whole argument are the unionists. They have to support conscription politically because they support Britain. A lot of individual unionists might have been a bit uneasy about the idea of being conscripted themselves, but unionists politically are obviously in favour of conscription. And also, I think it's worth pointing out that the Church of Ireland and the Protestant churches also support conscription because politically they're unionists. The Catholic Church, of course, is playing a central role in the campaign against it. But the trade unions are able to have this very successful general strike because they're riding on a wave of militancy and confidence. In 1916, the Irish Transport Union, when the rising took place, had been in the doldrums after Pulaka, maybe 5,000 members, mostly in Dublin. By 1920, the Irish Transport and General Workers Union alone had grown to about 120,000 members, almost half of them farm labourers in the south and east of Ireland. So the unions are becoming a major force, labour is becoming a major force, and this gives them a central part in the campaign against conscription. And it's sometimes, I suppose, forgotten, because in our own minds we jump from 1916 to 1918 to 1919, whatever. In 1918, it is recognised within the Republican movement how important conscription is. Bridget Foley, who was a member of Common Amon, said, I was on the Fibsburg Committee of the Anti-Conscription Organisation. It was really the anti-conscription movement that revived national feeling in the country and made the subsequent fight in 1920 and 21 possible. The solidarity brought about by the threat of conscription, to my mind, led to the success at the general election at the end of that year. And of course, conscription was abandoned in the summer of 1918. The British government climbed down in a very humiliating fashion. And this gave a huge boost to Sinn Féin and the Irish volunteers because they were seen as playing a leading role against it. Then, in December 1918, war ends in November, there's a general election in the United Kingdom for the first time in eight years. And of course, for the first time, all men over 21 in Britain and Ireland have the vote. And some women, some property holding women over 30, have the vote as well. It's far from a universal franchise, but it's much more democratic than anything that had gone before. The number of eligible voters in the country rises to over a million. In Dublin, it rises from about 33,000 men to 120,000 people. So again, there's a big extension of the franchise. And this obviously affects the election as well. In the Dublin area, Sinn Féin win 10 of the 11 city and county seats. So they're almost sweeped the board in Dublin, except in Ratmines. The unionists hold Ratmines. The one unionist seat outside of Ulster and outside of Trinity College is here in Ratmines. But these results are replicated across most of Ireland. Sinn Féin takes 73 seats, the Unionists take 22, and almost all of them are in Ulster, and the Home Rule Party wins just six. In political terms, it's destroyed. This gives Sinn Féin, obviously, a mandate in their mind to establish a parliament in Dublin, Dáil Éireann, which opens in January 1919, which then, of course, opens up a whole new phase in the struggle for independence. Now, again, I would stress that the election is in many ways the great untold story of those years because while most people are aware that Sinn Féin win this election, I think a lot of people would be hard pressed to tell you who was elected where, who, who lost for example. The bookshelves are creaking, rightly so, with books about 1916. There isn't one book about the 1980 general election. 
And of course, what's also significant about that election is that it's fought under the British system of first past the post, which today we regard as a very unfair system in Britain because if you top the poll, you're elected. And if you don't top the poll, no matter how many votes you get, that's, that's you gone. Now, in 1918, if, if that election had been fought under the system we have now, there would have been dozens of home rulers and unionists and independents and all politicians of various stripes elected because, again, it would have been a much more diverse result. But first past the post means that Sinn Féin topped the poll in a whole range of constituencies. Now, again, some of those seats are uncontested, as they always had been. For 40 years in Ireland, there were seats which never saw elections. An MP stood and nobody stood against him, and that happened in 1980 as well. But there is a lot of the seats contested. Sinn Féin quite clearly win. Along with the growth of Sinn Féin, which is most dramatically illustrated by the election results, we have the reorganisation and growth of the Irish Volunteers. In August 1916, Simon Donnelly, who was a Dublin volunteer officer, was freed from prison in Britain. He comes home and he recalls, when I got home, I started to get the released men of my company together and started reorganising. And across Ireland, other officers were doing the same thing. In November 1916, Carl Brewer presided at a conference in Dublin in which a programme of volunteer reorganisation was laid out. The steady stream of veterans of the Rising arriving back in Ireland was key to that process. But the results initially were very uneven. In some areas, there were divisions about what had happened during Easter week, and these festered for years. So, for example, in Limerick, the volunteers were divided into two battalions because of a split about what they did or didn't do in 1916, and that remained the case right till 1921. In other areas, men simply dropped out. Even some of the men who'd been in jail in England, they come back and they don't become active again. But by 1917, people like Michael Collins, Richard Mulcahy, and Aaron Lynch began appointing enthusiastic local organisers, usually members of the IRB, who they feel can reinvigorate the volunteers at local level. In May 1917, there's a convention in Dublin for the volunteers, which instructs local units to take responsibility for training and arming themselves. And volunteer units are encouraged to drill and parade and present themselves as a force in their localities. Now this means, of course, breaking the law, because it's illegal for the volunteers to drill. And what volunteer headquarters want is for their volunteers to be confident enough to break the law. And in some areas they are, and in some areas they're not. But you begin, begin to see a steady stream of people being arrested during 1917 for illegal drill. The volunteers are also assured in May 1917 that they will not be called upon to take part in any more forlorn hopes, that any future military effort will be a serious one. Now again, this is still pretty vague, and there's no clear instruction as to what a future military effort might involve. But it's obvious that the volunteers will need weapons. Throughout 1917 and into 1918, securing arms is a key task for the volunteer movement. Some units, like those in Swords in County Dublin, still possessed a few Holt rifles, Martini rifles and revolvers. This army had been held by some of our original members who had not participated in the rebellion or had dumped them before surrender. So into 1918, there are still volunteers with weapons that had been used up to and including during Easter week. Buying or stealing rifles from British soldiers remained a popular way of getting weapons right up to 1919, while shotguns could be sought from sympathisers or stolen as well. In Dublin, the Citizens' Army's contacts on the docks were used to bring in arms from Britain and elsewhere, and the Citizens' Army remained in existence um, right throughout this period as well. But in general, the volunteers are woefully ill-equipped. In Mallow during 1918, in Cork, it's 120 men in the local unit. They have access to around 50 shotguns, but only one rifle. The IRB are trying to revive the transatlantic networks, bringing weapons from America, but of course there's another source of arms which is much closer to home. By 1918, the volunteers were increasingly targeting the Royal Irish Constabulary. 
The volunteer executive didn't endorse armed attacks on the police as such, but they realised that weapons could be taken much more easily from the police than from the British military. And much of what occurred was ad hoc and dependent on local confidence. So, for example, in some areas, volunteers might be afraid or uneasy about raiding a police barracks or holding up individual policemen. In other areas, militant officers would attempt to do that. Um, in Bantry in September 1918, for example, the local volunteers hold up a police patrol and take their weapons, and then they just let the constables go. And again, that happens quite a bit during 1918. But inevitably, some policemen will also attempt to resist having their weapons taken from them, and their clashes, and these begin to become more uh, common throughout that year as well. And the general mood is radicalised. Throughout 1917, the volunteers also played a major role in supporting Sinn Féin candidates in by-elections. In all of the by-elections into 1917 and up to the general election, Republicans faced physical opposition from supporters of the Home Rule Party and sometimes from supporters of the Unionists. Again, often forgotten how violent Irish politics was. Fighting at meetings, fighting outside meeting halls, this goes on all the time in 1917 and 1918. And the Home Rule Party don't go quietly. Home Rule Party are a fairly tough bunch. They've got a lot of support in the towns, particularly from poorer townspeople, which you find right throughout Ireland. They also have a lot of support in Belfast. They have the ancient order of Hibernians, very closely affiliated to them. So in all these by-elections, Home Rulers will mobilise their supporters, and the volunteers come from all over Ireland to support Sinn Féin candidates as well. And there's lots of fights and lots of clashes, and people are badly injured. And on occasion, firearms are used also. The volunteers sometimes open fire when they're cornered by large groups of Home Rule supporters, for example, and several people are shot in the elections. In Armagh during the early 1980, an election which Sinn Féin actually lose, Tomás McCartan from Cork has gone up to support Sinn Féin with volunteers, and he relates how we've had a few scraps, and they're tough boys that we lads of the North. Now, he was actually talking about Home Rule supporters, members of the Hibernians, and not Orange Men or Unionists. But the clashes have the effect of stealing the newer volunteers into a more cohesive force who are not afraid of physical activity and who aren't afraid to defy the law of the police. There's also a number of fatalities during 1917 which also harden attitudes on both sides. In Ballybunion and Kerry, a young man is shot dead during a protest outside the police barracks. In Dublin, a police inspector dies after being struck with a hurley during a protest meeting outside the customs house. And again, on both sides, views are radicalising and opinions are hardened. As arrests for illegal drilling increase, so does prison protests and confrontation behind prison bars. A hugely symbolic event in September 1917 is the funeral of hunger striker Thomas Ashe in Dublin. Ashe died after forced feeding, and his funeral becomes a major occasion of Republican strength. Richard Mulcahy and Dick McKee of the Volunteers in Dublin are to the fore in putting on a major show of uniform volunteer strength. Volunteers march through Dublin behind his funeral cortege. There's a volley of shots in Gasnevin. The British decide to step back. They decide it's not worth the confrontation on the streets, so they allow the volunteers to do this. But Michael Collins boasts that Dublin is in the hands of the volunteers again. And Collins, of course, gives a very brief oration at the funeral of Thomas Ashe. After the volley of shots, Collins steps forward and says, essentially, um, that's the only speech which is proper to make over the grave of the dead fiend. If you compare that with Pierce's famous oration for O'Donnell and Ross, I think it says something about not just their personalities, but also the movements and the way that they're uh, developing. In November 1917, another volunteer uh, convention is held in Dublin at Crow Park. It's held the same weekend as Sinn Féin's Ardesh, and De Valera also presides 
at the volunteer convention and becomes president of the volunteers. So this solidifies, obviously, a link between Sinn Féin and the volunteers. But again, behind the scenes, it's still very unclear who's in charge. And who's in charge of the volunteers and whether Sinn Féin really do control them remains a bone of contention right up to 1921. Um, the volunteer executive in Dublin are keen to assume central control, to know what's going on right throughout the countryside. Richard Mulcahy and others in particular, one of the reasons we know all this is because they write a lot of it down. They want an, the volunteers to be organised like a regular army with regular reports for what they're doing, how many weapons they have, how many mem members they have. But at local level, the set of the pace of events is often determined by young militant officers who want to see action. The conscription crisis in 1918 pushes this radicalisation even further. Oscar Trainer from Dublin was in jail in Dundalk during the crisis. He'd been arrested for illegal drilling, and he recalled the feeling of the time was reflected in the attitude of the officials in Dundalk, who informed us if there was any attempt to enforce conscription, they would open the prison gates and allow all the prisoners to go free. When he was released, he said. We found all the companies of the battalion were at almost twice their former strength. Many expect, of course, in April and May 1918, that a fight was in the offing and that conscription would be introduced and volunteer recruiting soared. In some districts, it was reported that virtually every able-bodied man joined up. Membership reached perhaps 100,000 in the spring of 1918. Now again, quite a bit of that recruitment is young men who don't want to be conscripted into the British Army and hope that being in the volunteers is going to stop them being conscripted into the British Army. And the numbers do drop once the crisis passes. By the, the midsummer, um, a lot of people have dropped out of the volunteers, but some of those who join stay and they add another layer of activism to the movement. The tendency for local units to push militancy further then is also increasing. So in June 1918, for example, two policemen are shot and wounded in Cork during a raid for arms. Now they don't die, but that's really a matter of luck more than anything else. The authorities report increasingly belligerent defiance of laws against drilling and public rallies. Where the volunteers are confident enough, they'll drill in front of the local police station and essentially say, it's up to you now to do something about this. Police report, for example, in Waterford, a policeman has, has some livestock, his pig is stolen, his prized pig is stolen, it's painted in the Republican colours and then let loose up the main street. Police stations have their crest of arms taken or the Union Jack taken and a tricolour put up in place. And the volunteers are obviously pushing things further and further, in some areas in particular. The end of the Great War in November obviously brings celebration and relief to thousands of people in Ireland. But among the volunteers, there's a sense that conflict is coming closer. On our mistress night in Dublin, when Dublin gets the news essentially that the war is over and the bells of Christchurch and St. Patrick's ring out, there's running battles between Republicans and off-duty British military and their supporters. Sinn Féin offices in Harcourt Street are besieged by a mob led by British soldiers and defended by the volunteers. There's a number of serious injuries on both sides. There's very intense street fighting in Grafton Street and elsewhere on that night. Michael Collins claims that the volunteers killed at least five British soldiers. British Army does report suffering any fatalities. But again, it's an indication of how there's a serious divide between people who are celebrating the end of the war and people who see this as an occasion to disrupt pro-British and imperial displays and all the rest. The general election in December again sees the volunteers mobilised and playing a key role across the country. Violence erupts between Republicans, home rulers, unionists in some areas and the police. And this, uh, as I say, has the effect again of toughening up the volunteers in some way. And the volunteers also perform other tasks during the election. James Cunningham, for example, remembers the volunteers did the greater amount of work in connection with the election. And of course they were personating as well. 
voting not only for dead people, but for living ones who were known to be hostile. Now, personation was quite common in Irish politics up till 1918, and it's certainly a factor in the 1918 election. I think most of the votes Sinn Féin wins are real votes, but the volunteers at the time are, are not in any way um, uh, backward about you know, admitting that many of them vote dozens of times where, where it's possible to do that. On the ground, the need for arms is continually pushed by the volunteer leadership. More raids on the police are encouraged. It's still very uh, unclear exactly what's to happen if the police resist, of course. And on the 21st of January 1919, there's a raid for arms at Solohead Beg in Tipperary, and two policemen are shot dead. Now, most of us probably have grown up with the idea that Solohead Beg is the opening shots of the War of Independence, because on the same day, Sinn Féin TDs meet in Dublin at the first meeting of Dáil Éireann, and this seems like a neat starting point. Again, in many ways, policemen could have been killed at any time in the previous year, and volunteers could have been killed as well. Um, at Solohead Beg, the local volunteers did make a decision to kill the policemen, and they didn't act on orders from Dublin. They made that decision themselves because they wanted to push things, things even further. And there is a lot of shock um, on the ground in Tipperary and elsewhere uh, after those killings. But significantly, of course, on the same day at the Mansion House, there is the first session of Dolly. Just 27 Sinn Féin TDs there, because most of the rest are in jail or on the run. Of course, the British government is not recognising Sinn Féin as a legitimate political movement. It's still attempting to suppress it in many ways. Invitations had been issued to the six Home Rule MPs and the 22 Unionists to attend Dolly and make it a genuinely representative All-Irish Parliament. None of them turned up, of course, and of course the British government doesn't recognise it as a legitimate Parliament either. The business of the day is conducted through Irish. There are journalists from all over the world there. And it concerns itself with three major proclamations. A declaration of independence, a message to the free nations of the world, and a democratic programme. An important part of today's proceedings is obviously an attempt to present the doll as the beginnings of a functioning government to the world's press. And the message to the free nations of the world is part of that argument, that Ireland should be represented in what's now the peace conference at Versailles. And indeed, Sean T. O'Kelly and a whole group of people are sent to Paris, and a lot of money is spent over the next year in trying to get into the peace conference, but they don't succeed in doing so. You then have, obviously, Declaration of Independence, modelled in some senses on the American Declaration, and also then a democratic programme. Democratic programme is written by Tom Johnson of the Labour and Trade Union Congress. It's influenced, in some senses, by Karl Marx's Communist Manifesto, but also particularly by Paul Pierce's Sovereign people and um, his pamphlet. It takes from Pierce that no right to private property is good against the public right of the nation. It argues that the state could take possession of any land or wealth that wasn't being used for the common good. Now the IRB object to the democratic programme. They read it obviously before the doll meets. Michael Collins allegedly threatens to suppress it, so it's rewritten by Sean T. O'Kelly. It's still quite a radical document. Its new form still asserts that all rights of private property must be subordinated to the public right. And it will be the first duty of the government to make provision for the physical, mental and spiritual well-being of the children. No child will suffer hunger or cold or lack of food, clothing or shelter. And that general lasting improvements will be made to the conditions which the working class live and labour under. Now, none of the documents adopted really by the first doll have anything like the popular recognition of the proclamation of Easter week. Um, these documents have the backing in some senses of a popular mandate, but the democratic programme is referenced you know, quite a bit, but people don't know that much about it. I'm sure a lot of people don't know there was a declaration of independence or a message. 
to the free nations of the world. And it again shows the hold that 1916 has in many ways, because it's the 1916 proclamation that's being brought around to schools at the moment. It's not the Declaration of Independence. In fact, we don't it really in any way celebrate 1919 at the beginning of our independence. But what did republicanism mean by 1919? What is this republic that they're talking about? In the run-up to the rising, Michael Staines recalled a meeting of volunteers in Dawson Street, their headquarters, where there was a discussion as to the reason they were declaring a republic. And he said, I think it was Sean McDermott who pointed out that France, which had helped us in the past, was a republic, and that America, where many of our kin lived, was also a republic. Those present at the meeting had an open mind. They desired freedom for the country, and they considered the simplest way to let the outside world know of that desire was to declare a republic. It was generally agreed when we got our freedom, it was solely a matter for the people themselves to decide their form of government. After the rising, the republic is on everyone's lips, and it's referenced in every speech that Sinn Féin and the Irish volunteers made publicly. But what actually are they saying this republic will involve? In August 1917, Thomas Ashe, who by this stage is president of the IRB, it's one of the last speeches he makes before he's arrested, gives a speech uh, down in our first county Kerry, it's commemoration for Roger Casement. And Ash tells the crowd, Sunday, we look away in the distant ages of the past to the figure of the king who died in the Battle of Clontarf, and we think of the Ireland which he ruled. And the Ireland of our ideals is a similar one. We go down the paths of history from the days of the great Brian, and we meet the O'Neills of Ulster, we meet with the chieftains of Munster, we go through the period of Shane O'Neill down to the sacrifices of Wolf Tonan and Robert Eck. We had an honour from God. It was a godly honour, and it could not be called by any other name. A few minutes ago, he says, when Captain Lynch recited the rosary with us, I was glad our meeting was taking place on a Sunday, and you might merge your prayers with his. He read out the five glorious mysteries of the rosary, the mystery of the resurrection and the ascension, and it was neat and fitting that these should be the mysteries of the rosary that we pray before heaven today. Because you will agree, and everyone will agree, that the resurrection has taken place in the life of Ireland. And let us pray that the resurrection that has taken place in Ireland will never die. So for a popular audience, and this isn't unique in terms of the rhetoric that's used at the time, the rising is presented as part of a struggle going back to the days of Brian Baru, and it's also very much infused with religious meaning, and particularly Catholic religious meaning. Now again, we can discuss this, but if Brian Baru was many things, but a Republican, he wasn't. And the Ireland of Brian Baru and his ideals was actually quite a different Ireland to the ideals of, of many of the people in 1916, or you would think it should be. Ash, of course, dies in prison in September 1917. His death has a big impact. And for many people, Ash's legacy is a hugely popular poem he writes. It's actually being used in an ad on RT television at the moment. The poem was, Let me carry your cross for Ireland, Lord. The hour for tra trial draws near. And the pangs and the pains of the sacrifice may be borne by my comrades dear. Um, the Catholic bulletin of December 1917 asserted that Ash's poem has attained the widest vogue and reflects the chaste and unconquerable spirit, the undying peasant love of faith and fatherland, which has left the Gael invincible on his own sacred soil. Indeed, he claimed that Ash's death moved the whole country to the deepest resentment and won more adherence to the Republican cause than did all the executions following the rising. It certainly did have a big impact, but it's interesting that the Catholic Bulletin, um, which becomes a very significant newspaper in the months after the rising, uses the term the peasant love of faith and fatherland. Because up to 1916, faith and fatherland was the slogan of the Hibernians. And Republicans would have blanched at the idea of fighting for faith and fatherland. That was the slogan of their rivals. But by 1917, 1918, you see postcards and posters of Parik Pierce kneeling before the cross. 
with the slogan for Faith and Fallaround, cartoons or, or drawings of piercing himself for his execution with the Virgin Mary appearing to him, and very much a religious meaning infused with the idea of the Easter Rebellion. Catholic bulletin becomes significant because the British government ban a wide variety of Republican newspapers. They don't ban the Catholic bulletin because they believe that would be seen as sectarian because it's primarily a religious newspaper. It's edited by a man called J.J. O'Kelly who becomes a Sinn Féin TD in 1918. And the Catholic Bulletin, right from May 1916 onwards, publishes a monthly feature called Events of Easter Week, where beginning with the leaders who were executed, it goes on through the rank and file, and it really celebrates the religious nature of those involved, and very much stresses their personal devotion, um, which in many cases I'm sure is absolutely true. So for example, the work of Horrid Pierce is described as permeated for the most part with the Catholic idealism of Gaelic Ireland and trust in God and his Virgin Mother, which is characteristic of the Irish-speaking peasantry. What was emphasised all the time was the religious and overwhelmingly Catholic nature of the rebellion and of the rebels themselves. And of course, where you had prominent Protestants, such as Countess Mark, with education involved, the fact that both those people converted to Catholicism after the Rising was celebrated and seen as extremely significant. The fact that Markovic became a Catholic was seen by the Catholic bulletin really as Markovic becoming really, really Irish, and that's simply the way that it was put. Now here there is a contrast, of course, with the rest of Europe, because in France and in Spain and in Italy and elsewhere, Republicans were usually, uh, usually identified by their hostility to organised religion. That's not the case in Ireland. There isn't this division at all. Um, for many people, they're one and the same thing. Brian O'Higgins, who's in the GPO in Easter week, later publishes the Wolf Tone Annual, which becomes significant in its own way, remembers the rising as a spiritual victory over selfishness, expediency, and compromise and materialism. Less a political revolt against the British Empire as more a revolt against you know, bad trades in terms of what had existed beforehand. Similarly, Ernie O'Malley, a very sophisticated writer and thinker, nevertheless, when he tries to explain the hold that republicanism had on him and his generation after 1916, he says, a strange love was born that for some was never to die till they lay stiff on the hillside or in a quicklime grave near a barrack wall. In other words, it's less political commitment to republicanism than an emotional and spiritual commitment to the idea of the republic, which people believe has been born in 1916. Now the problem is, of course, is that if it's arising against compromising materialism, by 1922, a section of those involved in the rising have compromised. By 1922, People like Richard Mulcahy and Michael Collins and others have made a compromise with the British Empire and a new state has come into being. And memory of 1916 becomes problematic very quickly for the new free state. You look at photographs of the fighting in Dublin in the first week of the Civil War. There's a photograph of free state troops sheltering behind pillar boxes near the forecourts. And on those pillar boxes there's a poster. Easter week repeats itself. The IRA still defends the Republic. And of course then for some Republicans 1916 is the cornerstone of their opposition to the new free state. The new free state is a betrayal. Even if some of the people who set up the free state were out in Easter week, they've sold us out. And the Republic still exists. The Republic of 1916 must be fought for. And that's problematic for the state in many ways. But I think for most Irish people, particularly people who live in Southern Ireland, most Irish nationalists anyway, it's different for nationalists in the North because they're never able to celebrate Easter week. Easter commemorations are banned in Northern Ireland um, up to relatively recently. But for most people in the South, the memory of Easter week does become part of their identity as people living in an independent state. And most people, I think, at least in the 1960s, would have believed that the Rising had been a necessary and a good thing. Firstly, it had worked. 
you know, the popular view was that up till 1916, the Irish people had been cowed in the face of British imperial power. Many of those people had famously jeered and abused the rebels in the rising's aftermath, but were then so inspired by their sacrifice and angered by what the British government had done that within two years, the rebels had become national heroes and the majority of the Irish electorate were voting for independence and voting for the Republic. Within another three years, a free state had been established and British forces had left most of the 26 counties. And not only then was the, the rising itself unproblematic, many people didn't have much problem with the idea that it had in fact in some ways been a blood sacrifice, particularly the idea that Pauri Pierce, for example, believed that a blood sacrifice could relieve the Irish nation was taken for granted by many people, and in fact they thought that essentially it had worked. In many ways it was an appealing notion for people of Pierce's deeply Catholic generation and the generations afterwards, with the echoes of Easter and Resurrection. As the journalist Amy McCann wrote of his education in Derry in the 1950s, as it happens, I learned from my mother's knee that Christ died for the human race and Pauri Pierce for the Irish section of it. And for many people this made sense, and as I say, it was pretty uncomplicated. And I think, again, one of the, the results of the changes that occurred in Irish society in the last 20 or 30 years is that until the 1960s, people didn't play down the Catholic element within the Rising or the fact that many of the rebels were very devout Catholics. Today, that element is played down to an extent, and the egalitarian and radical element is played up a bit more because the stock of the Catholic Church has fallen in the last 30 years. As I say, that wasn't very problematic for people, at least all through the 1960s. But in the 1960s, you did begin to see criticism emerge. Now, there had always been private criticism. People like Owen McNeill and Wilmer Hobson had never given up on their criticism, but they didn't publish it very widely, at least over the 1960s. And some of the criticism was actually inspired by the 50th anniversary in 1966. Some people began to identify the idea of a blood sacrifice as central to what they saw as irrational, undated, unmandated violence at the heart of the rising. Father F.X. Martin published an influential essay in 1968 entitled 1916 Coup d'etat, or Bloody Protest. And he argued that this all through 1916, the majority of the Irish people had supported Redmond and Home Rule. They were willing to accept, at least temporarily, dominion status of one form or the other. And therefore, of course, the rising was carried out by, the, by a minority of a minority of a minority. The Irish volunteers were a minority of the Irish people. The IRB were only a minority of the Irish volunteers. And even the IRB weren't agreed on the need for a rising. It was a small military council of the IRB who carried that out. And he, of course, argued, and his argument carried a lot of weight with some people, that celebrating a rising carried out by a minority who clearly disagree with the democratic opinions of the majority is very problematic. In fact, the rising contravened even the IRB's own constitution, which had stated since 1873 that there couldn't be a rebellion unless it had popular support among the Irish people. The rebels certainly didn't have that, at least at the beginning. Most people tended to agree that it was only British repression in the aftermath that gave it. By the 1970s, it was no longer taken for granted that a minority had the right to fight on behalf of the Irish people who made it in the group. And the war in Northern Ireland, of course, accelerated the re-evaluation in 1916 to the point that by the 1980s, the rising was being denounced by some people as a quasi-fascist putsch, which destroyed the prospect of peaceful self-government and led not only to the wars of 1919-23, but also to partition itself. And you don't have to go very far to hear that argument today. Former teacher John Bruton rehearses this on every opportunity that he's given. He's given a lot of opportunities to rehearse it. But nevertheless, I think its roots lie in the 1970s. Pierce's seeming preoccupation with the redemptive nature of the 
also became, of course, deeply unfashionable. And some of these statements, like, for example, that of December 1915, when he wrote that the last 16 months have been the most glorious in the history of Europe, the old heart of the earth needed to be warmed with the red wine of the battlefields, such a gust homage was never before offered to God as this, the homage of millions of lives given gladly for love of country. Or his assertion in 1914 that we must accustom ourselves to the thought of arms, the sight of arms, to the use of arms. We may make mistakes in the beginning and shoot the wrong people, but bloodshed is a cleansifying, is a cleansing and sanctifying thing. Put mildly by the 1970s, these views sounded pretty irrational and wrong. Of course, they're completely taken out of context because Pierce wasn't writing in the 1970s. He was writing in 1914 and 1916, in which every nationalist in Europe actually agreed that bloodshed uh, and dying for your country was a good thing. But nevertheless, by the 1970s, and Pierce is the 1916 leader who suffered the greatest fall from grace, because in many ways, he was the one that had the furthest to fall, because he was held up in many cases as almost a saint until the 1960s. And much of the criticism of Pierce, I would say, is unfair and out of context, but nevertheless, this is what happened, and the things he wrote about blood sacrifice became deeply unfashionable for people. And the rising, of course, then became part of the political and cultural battle about what was, what was happening in Northern Ireland. So the debate continued, and your views in 1916 increasingly became tied into your views about what was happening in the North. In 1991, Jerry Adams of Sinn Féin asserted that one generation of Republicans is always used to denigrate the next. If you in any way try to justify the rising, then you can't say it was okay in Dublin 75 years ago, it was okay for your granddad, but it's not okay in Belfast or Derry or South Armagh today. The leaders of the rising didn't have a mandate. Pierce never stood for an election in his life. Connolly stood in council elections and got trounced. And Adam's point was that when people said the IRA don't have mass popular support, well, the 1916 leaders didn't have either, and he took it for granted that they didn't. And he also then, of course, claimed that you can't celebrate Easter week and then criticise us for carrying on the business of Easter Week today. Now, it was a sign of how far Pierce had fallen that Adams at the time also said that some of Pierce's language about blood sacrifice is inappropriate now. So even many Republicans weren't prepared to stand over um, some of, of Pierce's writings. Nevertheless, for some people, particularly those who supported the IRA's armed struggle in the North, it was key that 1916 was part of their struggle and they saw it as hypocritical that anyone could claim 1916 and condemn the provision. Others, of course, disagreed. Sean McEntee, himself a 1916 man, responded to similar arguments about, uh, by people like Adams in the 1970s by claiming that the men of 1916 did not plant bombs in public places, caring not whom these might kill or maim, whether men, women, or children. Neither did they fan sectarian hatred, as neither did they turn their guns on each other in furtherance of personal or organisational rivalries. They were true soldiers and they fought the clean fight. And again, this is an argument that you don't have to go very far to find today. That the men and women of 1916 and the men and women of 1919 to 21 were a completely different organisation who behaved completely differently to anything that emerged after 1969 and 1970. And again, on both sides, people feel very strongly, and both of them have strong points in their arguments. The problem was, however, that veterans of 1916 did kill each other within a very short space of time during the Irish Civil War. And some of the worst atrocities of the Civil War were committed by veterans of Easter Week. The new Free State Government executed men like Liam Mellows, who had been out in 1916, while the men who had taken part in the Rising with support of the Treaty were also killed by the anti-Treaty IRA. By the 1930s, Republicanism had split again. And in 1940, Eamon de Valera's government would execute Patrick McGrath, a 1916 man who still carried shrapnel in his body from the fighting in Dublin. 
But the IRA would also shoot dead 1916 veteran Dennis O'Brien, who by 1942 was a guard detective. So again, on both sides, this split of Republicanism was reflected in the memory of the rising as well. And of course, it's hard not to view the rising through the lens of today and what we know about what came afterwards. But I think it's necessary to try and view the rising in the context of its time. Because certainly the men and women who fought in the rising didn't know how it would turn out. They were people of their times, and I think that's firstly how we have to look at them and imagine. And particularly, I think we shouldn't use them as vessels into which to pour our own dreams today. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Dublin City Public Libraries and Archive podcast. To hear more, please subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud. You can also visit our website, dublincitypubliclibraries.ie, and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.